What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. We can put you inside someone else's body for 15 minutes. Can I be anybody that I want to be? Well, you... Actually... You can be John Malkovich. This is perfect. It's my second choice, but it's wonderful. If I could be in anybody's body for 15 minutes... Got to be Jordan, Michael Jordan. In the 90s, or are you okay just sitting courtside watching the Charlotte Hornets? Yeah, rough place for the Hornets right now. Either, though, honestly, really. Oh, yeah? Either. Fair enough. John Cusack and Catherine Keener in that clip from Being John Malkovich, which turns 20 this year. This week is part of our 9 from 99 series. We revisit the debut film from director Spike Jones and writer Charlie Kaufman. Plus, 1934's The Scarlet Empress, the fourth and final film in our Marlena Dietrich, Joseph von Sternberg marathon. All that and more. Sometimes I dream ahead on film spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Thank you, Joseph von Sternberg, for your 80-minute movies. We made it through this latest film spotting marathon in record time. It doesn't happen very often, and we did finally get a little closer to the two-hour mark with this last film, The Scarlet Empress from 1934, but it was a nice change of pace. Yeah, it felt like I saw that running time, and I was... I had been spoiled. It's like, what? Come on. Right. 115 minutes. Exactly. I did it. We'll talk The Scarlet Empress later in the show, and we will wrap up this marathon as we always do with the Marathon Awards. And we had not, as of our last show, or walking into the studio, settled on a name for these awards. So I thought, why not? On-air production meeting, Josh. We have a few ideas here, starting with one that came in from listener Laura Ellis, who said, I very much enjoyed the Marlena Dietrich Marathon, especially the Scarlet Empress. Thank you for bringing this to my attention. The awards should be called the Lily von Stupp Memorial Awards after <laughs> Madeline Kahn's wonderful parody of Dietrich in Blazing Saddles. You'll honor both actresses. Another listener did suggest the von Stupps. I love that because... Khan's performance, one of my favorite comic performances of all time, even before I had any Dietrich really yeah. to put the context to. Now, now, it's even greater. Yeah, I always enjoyed that performance without getting it at all. And now we've done this marathon. I do get it. Of course, the professor, Nathaniel Myers, who we will hear from during this marathon, setting us up as he does and also participating in the awards, he suggested the boas for that particular moment. Dietrich pulls back her boa during Morocco, as well as for all the various feathers and frills she wears throughout these movies. It also has a nice pun on Dietrich's many snake-like acts of temptations. Or we could go a little deeper cut, Josh, the Bantons for Mm. Travis Banton, the costume designer for three of the four films in this marathon. And finally, he suggested it's a little wordy, but something like the butterfly lights or the butterfly shadows, since butterfly lighting is apparently what they call the kind of lighting often used on Dietrich as it creates a shadow in the shape of a butterfly under her nose, and which is maybe the most incredible factoid of the whole marathon. So something about butterflies, boas, bantons, we could go von Stupps, or Sam suggested our producer maybe just simply the Lolas. What say you? I'm leaning toward the boas. I don't know if that gives von Sternberg enough credit, though. Good point. I mean, 
touches on the costume, so yes. we're bringing that into it. I love that moment. I think that is probably where I'm leaning. Okay. You know what? I'm on board. Okay. We're going with Easy enough. the Boas. The way Dietrich looks and has looked throughout these marathon films has been so striking. We might as well recognize that. And, of course, the work of Travis Banton as well, the costume designer. So we will share the Boas a bit later. First, though, let me move this filing cabinet out of the way, open this little door, and we can dive into being John Malkovich. Thank you. Welcome to the seven and a half floor of the Merton Plummer Building. My name is Craig Schwartz, and I have an interview with Dr. Lester. Please have a seat, Mr. Juarez. My name is Schwartz. My name is Schwartz. Which of these two letters comes first, this one or this one? The symbol on the left is not a letter, sir. Damn, you're good. Do you know that I don't even know your name or where you work? And 50 other lines to get into a girl's pants. <laughs> so, honey, have you thought any more about us having a baby? I think that maybe we should just wait and see if this job thing pays off. There's a tiny door in my office, Maxine, and it takes you inside John Malkovich. There's no such thing as a hole into somebody's brain. Yes, there is. Kempenar, 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 Kempenar. Nice try. Kempenar, 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 Kempenar. Yeah. Kempenar, 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 Adam, Kempenar. Well done. I'm done. I can't take credit for that. No, I know. I wish I could. Albert Malafront, who I met at the L.A. meetup, he made that joke. I think it was either earlier today or yesterday, and it did give me the perfect setup for our 9 from 99 review of being John Malkovich. Did you understand all of that, Adam? Of course. Or should, I, should I go over it again, Of course. Maybe? I speak Malkovich. I speak Kempenar, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that is your native tongue. Let's try this anyway. It seems like a bizarre thing to say about being John Malkovich, but the movie makes sense now. In 1999, as the feature screenwriting debut of Charlie Kaufman, we didn't quite know what to make of this bizarre, dark comedy about a puppeteer played by John Cusack who stumbles upon a portal that puts you inside John Malkovich's head, literally seeing what he sees for 15 minutes. Even a glowing four-star review from Roger Ebert at the time opened with puzzlement. What an endlessly inventive movie this is, Ebert wrote. Charlie Kaufman, the writer of Being John Malkovich, supplies a stream of dazzling inventions, twists, and wicked paradoxes. Well, today, our question about Being John Malkovich, which also marked the feature directorial debut of Spike Jones, is how well that inventiveness has aged. Now, in 2019, after Kaufman's received that Oscar nomination for his Malkovich screenplay and went on to write the likes of Adaptation and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, he won an Oscar for that latter one. And after he's directed films like Synecdoche, New York, and Anomalisa, stop-motion puppets in that one, we should note. Well, in light of what Kaufman would go on to do, being John Malkovich makes perfect sense and even feels familiar You've got your frustrated, creative male protagonist who loathes himself even more than the audience probably does. You have evocative women characters who both bedevil and bewitch the hero. Cameron Diaz and Catherine Keener co-star here. And you have an emotional nihilism that suggests human beings are probably not capable of more than satisfying their own immediate desires. Watching it again, Adam, being John Malkovich was familiar even though I hadn't seen it in 20 years. But does it feel tame? I'm curious, 20 years later, what you still found invigorating, 
stimulating, or provocative about the movie? Has its head-spinning allure slowed down, or did it spin your head in new ways? Yeah, it didn't feel tame at all, and we certainly could go on about the connections to Kaufman's work, some of which you touched on. We could talk about some of the various ideas it provokes. I'm sure we will, but on a basic level, and I can't wait to hear about your experience, what I found most invigorating was how much the movie surprised me. Of any movie in our series so far, and I'm just saying surprised me in terms of what happens over the course of a story, just starting there on a surface level, this is the movie that it turns out I remembered the least of the films we've done. And I never would have guessed that. I would have told someone, well, of course, being John Malkovich is the movie about the pathetic puppeteer and the portal into Malkovich's head. And I guess I assumed that that filled up 90 to 100 minutes because that's the film, right? Well, I forgot how truly dark this movie is when it comes to the relationships and that phrase that we use very generously last week with Linklater's Where'd You Go, Bernadette? The emotional complexity of those relationships. Kaufman and Jones steer us through a truly twisted psychological and existential swamp. To start with, I forgot how contemptible Craig is, played by John Cusack. He's fueled by lust and unhappiness. He's pathetic. He's pretentious. He's filled with contempt. But the way that Jones and Kaufman approach his art here, for the most part, is done in a serious way. Yep. There's validation, I think, and there's redemption in the care with which they bring his art to life and the way certainly near the end of the film it's received once he's taken over Malkovich's body. He's totally selfish, but I think by the end, the movie suggests he's totally selfish in the way great artists may need to be in terms of being singularly focused and driven. So you hate him on one level, but you certainly also pity him at various points, too. The biggest revelation, though, was Cameron Diaz Mm. and her character, Lottie. I would have told anybody who asked that Lottie was just this kind of plain nagging wife who was completely on the periphery of this film. Obviously, I'd forgotten the ending. And she's there ultimately to serve Craig's trajectory. You watch the film again, you realize, wow, that's definitely not the case. It's as much her journey as it is Craig's. And she's certainly the more sympathetic character. But here's where the complexity comes in. She's selfish, too. She wants to use Malkovich to be fulfilled. And there is, of course, a little bit of a sexual component to that, perhaps. But the experience of being inside Malkovich transforms her in a way that I found genuinely tender and touching. And I love the way Diaz conveys that conversion, that kind of sublime state that she's in. After the first time she's in the car, Craig has picked her up off the New Jersey Turnpike where they get dumped out after they've been inside Malkovich for those 15 minutes. And it's almost like she's trying to recall the most vivid, exciting dream she's ever had. Being inside did something to me. I knew who I was. I mean, it's... It's like everything made sense, you know? I, I, I knew who I was. But you weren't you. You were John Malkovich. I was, wasn't I? I was... I was John Malkovich. I was... I was John Malkovich. And there's also the messiness of that hilarious scene where Maxine, Catherine Keener, comes over for dinner. This is post 
conversion experience for Lottie. And she's sitting on the couch between both of them. And they're both just so mesmerized and enthralled by her that at the same time, they just can't take it anymore. And they throw themselves on top of her. And the aftermath of that is great because there's not even really embarrassment or acknowledgement, despite the fact that they're their husband and wife, and they've both leapt on to this other woman. It's just a reality that they both accept in the moment. And these are people who probably do, even at that point, still love each other or have strong feelings for each other, but they're just completely willing to sacrifice that old love for this new love, or at least this new feeling that Maxine has sparked in both of them. And I mentioned it briefly there, talk about Dark, the implications of the ending of this film, where you do have to ache for Craig and the existence he's relegated to for eternity, it seems, even as we're happy for all of the other characters. And you could argue on some level, he deserves it. So I think it also puts the exclamation point on what the movie is ultimately about for me, which is control. So those were all the big surprises for me. What about you? Well, I yeah, even as I said, it was very familiar with Kaufman's other films in mind. It was absolutely surprising because I had not revisited it in 20 years. So that's one thing. But I had the same memory of what this movie was about. And there was so much more to it, including Diaz's performance, which is fantastic. And how and the way that Craig and Cusack are really diminished, mm-hmm. purposefully diminished as the movie goes on. The cameos, I had completely forgotten. David Fincher, Brad Pitt <laughs> giving Malkovich the side eye is such a great moment on the red carpet later in the film. Um, And Malkovich himself, what I would have told you is, yeah, he pops up, has a little fun with his persona. This almost becomes... a great performance. He gives a fantastic performance, but it almost becomes his story. Yeah, it's there, about there's a his section struggle. there where it, yes, yes, his struggle. And yeah, just to to touch on that performance a little bit, it, it's very funny, of course, self-deprecating, as you would expect, but mostly captures the horror of being stuck inside your head to the point of, it, it's just, it's self-annihilation via supreme narcissism. Mm-hmm. And the way he captures the terror of that is at once funny and self-deprecating, but also, yeah, it's, it, it just makes it a horror film And in that segment where Truly. he comes into focus. So that was one thing that surprised me. Um, but yeah, I guess the things that challenged me, provoked me, I was fascinated in the context of 2019, how this does bring in the transgender element. Now, the term sure. they use in the film is transsexual. Um, and this is, as you said, after she does experience life through Malkovich's eyes, Cameron Diaz's Lottie says she wants to be a man. She declares, right. I want to be a man. Now, I don't know, you know, again, if you put this in a 2019 context, how much it actually says about gender identity. As you intimated, it's very much tied to sexual desire um, and that aspect of it, especially, you know, considering she's she's motivated by having sex as Malkovich with Catherine Keener's Maxine. So this goes back to another Kaufman thread that it's, sure. it's almost always about the immediate human desire driving us to places. I think it's deeper than that with Lottie, which we can get to, but sex is definitely a component, that yeah. gratification. Well, that's, sure. what I was, that's what I was wondering about yeah. because um, it was fascinating to me in 99 that it brings this into the conversation, but it still seems to be coming about it from a different angle than we might today where the sexuality is only one element of gender. Sure. Identity. Yeah, and anyway. I'll just say I'll just say real quick on that note, when that concept was brought up of her wanting to exist in that different body, mm-hmm. feeling like she belonged in that body, I of course was thinking about 
all the elements you just touched on and how I had no idea that it would sort of be relevant in 2019 in a way in 1999. Exactly. I definitely didn't think about it at all, but I wondered if it would exist only on that plane more metaphorically versus literally. And then as I'm thinking all of this, almost in the next sentence, she says, I think I want to be a man. Like oh, yeah. She actually describes wanting to possibly have surgery yes. and become a male. Yeah, yeah, it, it does It does dig into it. So I found that absolutely fascinating, uh, very provocative. And then also the main thing for me, I would say, is it goes back to the context of Kaufman's career. There was a real poignancy for me in watching this, his first film, seeing his first stab at countering the despair that we know he's going to continue to explore, being thwarted, as we know, He's almost always going to be thwarted in his movies. His movies are going to be thwarted at trying to counter that despair, I should yes. say. And, and here we see one of his first potential saviors to this deep malaise, and it's becoming someone else. For me, it, th- this is about the desire uh, to, to leave yourself behind, find a better life by simply being someone else. And it doesn't work here. Um, it just it just fails. And you could argue that all of his films try to find a cure to the human condition in some way and fail. Maybe the most hopeful is Eternal Sunshine. At least the structure offers two readings of that where we could see it as hopeful. Uh, I do think in Anomalisa, um, he's found there's something there about uh, making art itself. This goes back to your comment about the them really respecting the art we see on the mm-hmm. screen. Something in Anomalisa about making art itself makes life worth living, even if it's a depressing story, absolutely, <laughs> but it's gorgeously told via stop motion. And I wonder you could how argue, that relates to Synecdoche, New well, York. That, that's like I'm trying the to most, apply that to the that most film. bitter, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. in, in my memory, that's the most sure. bitter one. And and yeah, of course, I'm looking at his upcoming projects, and the next film is titled "I'm Thinking of Ending Things." So so. Who knows, you know, what that's going to be like, but we definitely have seen this trajectory um, of continually wrestling with a deep malaise about the human condition and being thwarted in different ways. And for me, there was a sadness, um, a good sadness, if you can have that. But in watching being John Malkovich express this raw distress and knowing that a full career of angst is waiting He's ahead waiting. for Kaufman. <laughs> I mean, it's... Yeah, it's it, setting the table yeah, for all of it. It absolutely. really is. And I think you use it a key word there that transitions into that key theme of the movie for me. You said thwarted and how that fits into this idea of control. That's really the underlying despair for me and what's driving that desire to want to take over someone else's body. They're thwarted in every aspect of life that might bring them some kind of satisfaction. So you think about Craig and Lottie, both the people we meet at the beginning of the film, they're both kind of powerless. They're both unsatisfied in their lives. You could say they're unsatisfied creatively, both of them, because I'm stretching the term creatively here a little bit, but think about Craig not being able to be the puppeteer genius. The world won't let him be that puppeteer genius that he clearly feels he is. He has that line, I feel I suffer. All I ask in return is the opportunity to do my work, and they won't allow it. They won't allow it. As if there really are these forces out there keeping him from his true calling, which really isn't the case at all. And for Lottie, she at least at one point expresses that desire to want to have a baby. She wants to create too, and is at least in some part dependent on Craig in order to make that happen and isn't able to bring that to fruition either. Maxine comes along and that that merger of Maxine and Malkovich, when that becomes what connects Craig and Lottie to Malkovich, that empowers both of them 
it gives them both a different path they see for happiness. And even though it's not his initial goal, he really just wants to go to bed at first with Catherine Keener's Maxine character. But he does eventually get to achieve his artistic goals as well through her and Malkovich. And he's doing it by literally, Josh, controlling Malkovich. He's pulling the strings on the puppets. He's bending them to his will. And then we see him actually pulling Malkovich's strings. And Maxine, of course, is pulling both Craig and Lottie's strings. Again, he gets back to that scene where she's stuck in the middle and she is just living off of the feeling, that vibe both of them are giving off to her. Her great line that comes later after Craig has started to be able to actually manipulate Malkovich and the horror of Malkovich losing complete control. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, not that's existing one at of all. these disruptions of the movie that your mind kind of breaks a second totally. time where, whoa, we're not only in here, but now, now we're controlling they're able him, to control. Which I'd also completely forgotten about. But remember her line where she so giddily says, let's have sex on this table. Let's have sex on his table and then make him eat an omelet off of it. And Malkovich says, no, the real Malkovich lets out this big yelp of no. I don't think in that moment we're supposed to believe she's all sexually excited because she loves having sex with physically John Malkovich, nor emotionally, psychologically Craig inside of Malkovich's body. It's the fact that he doesn't want it to happen and she can completely control the situation. She can get Craig to do what she wants. She can get Malkovich to have to suffer through that moment having sex on his table. And making him later eat an omelet off of it. That's what gets her off. It's a complete power play. That's why when you say that she empowers them, yes, I see what you mean by the things she, she gives them things they think they want. Right. But ultimately it's so that she can. She's serving herself too. Yes. And it's a a total power play. The other line she has, she says it, comes right out and says it, it's playing with people. Yeah. She explains it. And she, she also though, there is an element of uh, her own desires being met there because she also explains, I think it's too. Craig, um, that you've never experienced having two pairs of eyes looking at you at once with lust and devotion? Is that the other word? Something like that. I forget what it is. Of course you haven't, she has. Oh, Keener is so good. She's so good. Just wicked here. I mean, you talk about um, Craig possibly getting what he deserves. Keener maybe and we'll get into the ending because I think, you know, there there are some issues I might have there, but Keener maybe gets the best of the endings, her character, and she probably deserves it the least. So that's the kind of movie this is. Lottie, certainly what she wants throughout this film, I touched on it. She wants a baby. She gets a baby at the end of the film. And she wants, even though that's not an aspect that's really emphasized throughout the film, it's suggested at the beginning and at the end she gets it and she wants Maxine and she gets Maxine. She does get Maxine, although that's where things get tricky again with what happens to her desire to be a man because she's not a man at the end. No, I think the movie... in a more, I, th- I feel like the ending, this is, we talked very briefly last show about how it wasn't on my top 10 list and I just wondered why not? I mean, the reputation, everything. Right. And I did have some issues with the ending here and how everything was almost kind of rushed to try to bring to a conclusion that didn't always fit, and this is not a movie that you should worry about the rules. No, it really does but, not try but, to but it didn't fit actually with make what, sense of that. No, and it yeah. doesn't make real sense of their relationship. It's almost like they were positioned that way in order to put Craig where he was, sure. rather than that it was any real logic with the desires that they had expressed earlier. Well, there's no doubt. I mean, Keener has a pretty sudden reversal yeah, in that yeah, moment, and totally. so I agree that it does rush to that moment at the end. I guess for me, the 
fact that it doesn't necessarily follow through completely on the transsexual idea that's brought up is that I think the movie actually does give credence to what Craig says to her in that moment where he's trying to counter what she's saying. And what he says might actually be correct, which is that she's just had this life-changing, mind-altering experience. It makes sense that she would then go to that place, but he kind of says, maybe that's not what really you want. You don't necessarily really want to change yourself. But you do feel feel converted in a way. And so we see Lottie, over the course of the film, not make – as drastic a conversion, but as dramatic of one. Yeah, yeah, that's possible. And then just real quickly, I do think the ending, uh, a movie like this, I said, doesn't need to explain its rules. So it's a bit dissatisfying that it tries. And this has to do with the whole reveal about Dr. Lester and um, the backstory, where the the room came from, where the portal came from, how mm-hmm. he's been using it all these years, how in the world all those you know people go into one mind. Sure. And, and even how Cusack you know, gets trapped. I know it was explained in the diagram, but but it's almost like, basically, there it is. This movie shouldn't have any diagrams. And I think it leans on those in the final 10 minutes in ways that, that are a little, it raises more questions than it needs to. Sure. But at the end, I'm stuck thinking about the emotional reality of the moment less than the mechanics of it, because the movie yes. has basically told me, you can disregard the mechanics. None of this makes any sense whatsoever. Right. So then, it really doesn't. It, which is why they shouldn't spend so much time trying to explain it. I guess I, I felt like they point. rushed through the that. whole The whole Lester like, yeah. subplot in the end could have been left out in a way where we just understood enough to know that somehow Craig was trapped. Perhaps. We didn't need to know the logistics. Perhaps, though, also it does bring up this larger notion of mortality that certainly runs throughout Kaufman's work. We see that in Lester and his crew. When I was thinking about this film earlier today, the image that I kept coming back to, and really I've used the word emotion and emotional here so many times, but I keep thinking about what Lottie experiences in this film, and especially that first time when she is inside Malkovich and she's seeing the world. We're seeing the world through her eyes, through Malkovich's eyes, and that feeling of joy, again, that she expresses seeing Maxine. And it is that frame that is almost like you're watching a movie screen. Mm-hmm. You're, you're aware that you're almost watching a movie screen. And the thrill for her is looking at that screen and feeling like she's being seen as a viewer, that Maxine is actually looking back at her and acknowledging her in some way. And so I'm going to throw this out here, Josh, and I'm not necessarily suggesting that this is a conscious choice on Kaufman's part, but it certainly would fit in with his concern with self-reflexivity and how meta his films are and certainly how obsessed with the artistic process they are. It occurs to me that being John Malkovich really is all a metaphor for the control of, but also the exploitation of art and the artist. So where does everyone kind of fit into this scheme? Maxine, I think you can pin pretty clearly as the producer, right? (laughs) She's all about the money. I don't think she ever even, it's not suggested, we don't see it either, that she even enters the portal. She doesn't really care about what is happening inside of Malkovich herself. She doesn't care about the art, if you will. She doesn't think about whether or not there's any real good or harm coming from it. She doesn't think about any of the philosophical questions it raises. It brings her two things she cares about, money and sex. And also, she's on the phone a lot. She is truly always making you, you deals. You be careful. You're, you're insulting a lot of producers I know right I am. now. I'm going uh, <laughs> to insult so many people with this, but just work with me. Craig is the director. He has genuine vision. He does have something to say, but he can't say it on his own. 
he needs to employ other people. Even when he's in control of Malkovich, it isn't Craig who's physically maneuvering those puppets. He's maneuvering Malkovich, who's maneuvering the puppets. And like a lot of directors, he's ambitious. He wants the adulation that comes with this art. And then I think that's where Lottie's the viewer. Lottie's the audience. I think that's why we probably sympathize with her the most. She consumes the art. She's moved by the art, by the experience of it. And I think it's probably easy to say then that John Malkovich is the actor in this scenario. He's the vessel that has to be controlled in order for everyone else to get what they want. And when I floated this theory earlier today by Sam, he pointed out that of course, in Kaufman's world, he could also be the writer. And I kind of dismissed it because I'd already thought of it. That makes sense with Kaufman. You think about his other films. But why complicate the metaphor if you have to? Why not just go with the fact that Malkovich is literally an actor playing himself in the film? But the more I thought about it, Sam might be onto something because you could argue that what Malkovich ultimately doesn't get to do, Malkovich, the character in this movie, by being taken over by these people, he no longer gets to tell his own story, which is what happens, of course, to writers in Hollywood. And there's a great line, a great exchange that happens when Malkovich storms the company, the seven and a half floor, yeah. and, and sees the portal. And he says, that portal is mine, and it must be sealed forever for the love of God. Mr. <laughs> Malkovich, sir. With all due respect, I discovered that portal. I mean, it's my livelihood, you understand? It's my head, Schwartz. It's my head. I will see you in court. That seemed to me exactly like an exchange that you could probably read in some trade magazine between a writer and a director or a producer where this, this director, Schwartz in this instance, really feels like, well, I discovered this. I discovered this, so it's mine and I need it to to survive and to make money and be successful. And Malkovich is saying that that is mine. This this thing that you have taken is mine. I'll see you in court. It seems like a classic writer director battle to me. Malkovich is so Malkovich in that scene. He really is. Um, yeah. I mean, if it's if it wasn't an intentional metaphor, I think it certainly functioned as a premonition because right. it, it seems like Kaufman would encounter many of those struggles as he went on from here and tried to make other films. I mean, adaptation is in some ways a, totally. a, a complete literal um, enactment of that sort of dynamic. Uh, okay. So Cusack as the director, let's talk about this movie's director. We've spent a lot of time talking about Kaufman and Spike Jones here. I, I think what I appreciated a lot about this and also saw how it was crucial to the further work he would do with Kaufman is just his tactile contributions. This is Kaufman is a guy of ideas. Um, his screenplays are stuffed with ideas for it to be a movie somebody's got to make you feel like you can touch it. Sure. And think about the ways we have that here. The portal itself, why, I mean, it's biological, right? It's goopy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's rounded. Like, yes. it, you know, it's not like it could have been a space portal, like a sure. gleaming cube. But no, it's this, it's like an artery yeah. or something, which immediately puts you more on edge than you already are. Um, <laughs> that chase through Malkovich's subconscious at mm -hmm. one point where... Lottie is chasing Maxine, right? Straight out of Eternal Sunshine later, too, Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But even the way the, the whole screen will shift yes. as they move, say, from a normal window in a house, they go out that and come down through an escape hatch on a bus and the whole screen yeah. turns. Um, that's so great. And um, you mentioned the attention to the art, 
to Craig's art. And I had totally forgotten. Maybe it just wasn't something I was as attuned to looking for back in 99. Good point. But the marionette work here, how amazing it is. It is rewarding on its own. Oh, my goodness. And I I tried to look up as much as I could about um, who was doing some of this. It looks like it was designed by Camela Portuguese and a company called Images in Motion. Then the onset puppeteer, I did find an interview um, with Philip Huber, who was doing the actual working with the puppets and the marionettes on the set. And yeah, I think, you know, in the screenplay, it is maybe something of a joke to have Craig be a puppeteer. It's easy to laugh at a guy sure. in the modern age trying to to get artistic credibility by being a puppeteer. But you can tell, as you said, that the movie has great respect for the art. And those are amazing expressive sequences. The film opens with that dance of it despair, does. which is, again, a humorous way to project just how overwrought and pretentious Craig really is about himself in yes. his state. But at the same time, think about the movements that that marionette is doing. And you've never seen, and there's some camera trickery I read as well going on there, but you've never seen work like that before. It, it is really amazing. So basically, you know, in making sure that the marionettes were a crucial part of the film, I think Jones's movies with Kaufman, though they're all about ideas, he does put that skin on them. He, sure. he makes some things we can see and touch, turns the ideas into cinema, basically, and he does it right here at the start. Yeah, and just manages the tone where there are moments that almost acknowledge the complete absurdity of what we're seeing. We get it in some of the pauses. We get it when... Craig Cusack goes to that job interview in Mary Kay Place for us, right, with that speech impediment. Welcome to Lester Corp. How may we meet your filing needs? No, no. Um, my name is Craig Schwartz, and I have an interview with Dr. Lester. Oh, uh, please have a seat, Mr. Juarez. Schwartz. Pardon? Schwartz. I'm, I'm sorry. I have no idea what you're saying to me right now. My name is Schwartz. My name is Schwartz. We get that sense through Craig that he's a little bit stunned by this whole thing, but that's balanced with the idea that he doesn't really question the seven and a half four thing. He he takes things at face value in a way that allow for us to take at face value how crazy this movie really is. So you're right. We really have two great debuts here by both Kaufman as a writer and Jones as a director. And I should mention to Cusack, though, he does get pushed aside by the narrative. Really enjoyed his performance yes. at the beginning. And the seventh and a half floor made me think of this. Even when he's not on that floor, the, the point of that, I think, is to make everyone hunched so that they look like they move like puppets like marionettes when they're kind of angled over to get through it Mm -hmm. but cusack has that even before he gets he does onto that floor he's kind of like a guy always hunched limp and hanging and so it's a you know when he makes the marionette of himself it's a very very uh, easy one-to-one visual comparison Being John Malkovich is currently available to rent on demand on most platforms and just go to your local public library, try to hunt it down on that seven and a half floor. I'm sure it's there. If you've seen the movie and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. A reminder that if you would like to hear more of our nine from 99 discussions, is this film number four or five? uh, Five, maybe. The Sixth Sense, The Matrix... The Blair Witch Project. Yes. I feel like this is four. Okay. Okay, so we're we're just about halfway through our 9 from 99 series. You can find that full lineup and the past conversations at filmspotting.net slash 
9 from 99. I did bring some puppets for Massacre Theater, Adam. Awesome. The listeners won't care, but I think we'll have fun. We're going to play Massacre Theater when we come back, plus The Scarlet Empress with Marlena the Great as Catherine the Great. It's the final film in our Marlena Dietrich Joseph von Sternberg marathon. Stay with us. I'm It's actually only been two years, Pennywise. You're listening to Film Spotting. That's from the trailer for It, Chapter 2. 2017's Chapter 1, according to my notes, Josh, is the highest grossing horror film ever. And the highest grossing R-rated horror film. And looking back at our star ratings, at least over on Letterboxd, we did kind of like this movie. Yeah, I had to, I don't know what it says about the movie, but I had to look up my review, actually, yeah. that, see what I wrote about it. And I do remember now it gets a little wearying and it's a long film. Sure. And if I it had does. one concern about this next one, really excited about the cast. It's set 27 years later. Yep. So the kids are now played by Jessica Chastain, James McAvoy, Bill Hader and others. Uh but this is even longer. The running time is even longer. longer on this. Almost three hours. Is that right? Something like that. It's yeah, close. It's like 169 minutes or something. So we'll see if that's for the better or the worse. We will see. It opens Friday the 6th of September here in the States next week on the show. We will review it, Chapter 2, and we will give you our fall movie preview in the form of, as we usually do, our top five questions about the fall movie season. If you have a question of your own, we'd love to hear it. Feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744. You can share those comments on social media as well over at Filmspotting or at Larson on Film. Our website, filmspotting.net, is where our local Chicago listeners can find run of engagement passes sometimes or advanced screening passes. And we do have some passes to give away for Raise Hell, The Life and Times of Molly Ivins. And I'll admit... Molly Ivins is a name and a face that is instantly recognizable to me, and yet I still had to look up what her exact occupation was. Of course, newspaper columnist and author. She's a media firebrand, familiar with her, but obviously not too intimate with her work. And it sounds like I would be a good candidate to watch this documentary, Raise Hell, which does open on September 13th here in Chicago, and it screens in advance on September 9th. If you would like to go see that documentary in advance for free, just go to filmspotting.net slash events to enter. I wanted to throw in a really quick Golden Brick nomination here, Adam. I think we've got maybe five or six titles in the mix. 
And the film I want to talk about is Honeyland, which I went into thinking that I was going to see this anthropological documentary about a beekeeper. She's a 55-year-old woman, I think, uh, in Macedonia, this deserted village, just practicing beekeeping this tradition that's been around for, I don't know, maybe millennia. Um, Very simple tradition, very respectful of the bees. And I'm watching this thing and it starts to become so compelling as a narrative that I felt like I was watching one of those true-false films from, you know, Kiristami or Makhmalbov or one of those Iranian masters that we did a marathon on because things just – there were just little clues. One of them is actually the shirt that the woman wears is such a perfect gold that it evokes bees. It evokes honey so well, and she's wearing it all the time. Her name, I should say, is Hatidza Muratova, and it just – reeked of costume design. Then this amazing narrative develops. Already we're kind of engrossed in the way she takes care of her aging, ailing mother in this small single-room home they share. But then this family arrives in this deserted town, seven kids, 150-some cattle, and they just bring chaos with them. And the father of the family, he's named Hussein Sam, he asks her, how much do you get at the market for a jar of honey? And right away you know that things are going to spiral downwards. And the amazing thing about this movie, it's co-directed by two filmmakers, Tamara Kotevska and Lubomir Stefanov. The amazing thing is that they at once localize this. So it seems like it's a very small story just happening with these people. But then as things spiral downward, it carries echoes of the dangers of like global capitalism, globalization. It also has biblical echoes of the fall, how you see what is sort of a paradise come undone. And sure enough, after watching it, I went to the website and here's how they describe it on the movie's website. It's the debut feature from documentarians Lubo Stefanov and Tamara Kotevska shot over three years by a skeleton crew committed to an intimate collaboration between filmmakers and subject. Hmm. That sounds yeah. like some of those Iranian films, For doesn't sure. it? Yeah. And so I'm still not exactly sure what's quote-unquote true, what's quote-unquote false. But like with those films, yeah, it, doesn't it doesn't matter. matter. No. It doesn't matter. And the, the glory of this movie is getting lost in the narrative that's so rich in detail. And some of the imagery, which is absolutely gorgeous, the way, again, she is uh, in that golden shirt against this kind of barren landscape, these beautiful landscape shots. So, yeah, I thought it would be an interesting documentary. It's an astounding story. And because I think of that distinctive quality of it, the way it blurs those lines, uh, does qualify it as a golden brick. And, and also it's the debut for both of those filmmakers in terms of a feature. So it's called Honeyland. It did open at the Music Box here in Chicago a few weeks ago. I know last week it had made its way to the Will Met Theater outside of Chicago. So limited release, hopefully If you're listening, you can see it in maybe the art house near your town and then eventually will, of course, make its way to DVD or streaming. Yeah, we will put more information about that film over at our website, filmspotting.net. I believe you can go to filmspotting.net slash bricks or just click on lists at the top of the page and navigate your way there. That's where we do house all of our Golden Brick contenders so far this year. Earlier this week, Josh, on our sister show, the Next Picture Show podcast, they released part one of their new pairing, the new documentary American Factory about a Chinese-owned factory in Rust Belt, Ohio, and Barbara Koppel's great 1976 doc, Harlan County, USA. More information about that 
is at nextpictureshow.org or wherever you get your podcast. Now, if you recall last week on the show, I said I didn't know anything about this movie when we were teasing this pairing. And literally the next day, all sorts of dialogue about it popping up in my Twitter timeline and different reviews. I think it was the day it was released on Netflix. So it is a movie I caught up with over the weekend. And I'll be curious to see whether or not our colleagues can change my mind on it a little bit, because certainly a well-meaning documentary and about a fascinating topic that really warrants some more wrestling. It's about globalism and even by the end of it becomes about machines taking over for the workers in this plant and about this culture clash between the Chinese and these blue collar workers. And it's certainly doing a lot of the same work or trying to shed a light on a lot of the same topics that Barbara Koppel was trying to do back in 1976 with Harlan County, USA. But the real trick of that film, what Koppel somehow managed to do is what American Factory for me didn't pull off Josh, which is she didn't focus on any one individual or even a handful of families. She tells the story of this coal miner strike in the early 70s from the perspective of an objective viewer who comes in and follows different threads, even shows what the company's perspective is on this. And we meet all sorts of different families and people involved. But It feels so much more intimate and like you are being exposed to, being put right in those homes with the people who this strike is most affecting. And American Factory wants to be a little bit more big picture and sprawling. And it takes us to China and it takes us on the private plane and in the backs of the cars with the chairman of the company, the Chinese chairman of the company. And it takes us to a handful of rotating people that all work for this factory, Americans who work for the factory. And by the end of it, I didn't feel attached to any of them, nor did I feel like I had as much insight into their lives and the struggle as I wanted. So I was a little bit disappointed in American Factory, but available on Netflix, a relatively easy, quick watch, and certainly, again, about a topic that deserves more consideration. And it's having a huge moment. I had only vaguely heard of it as well. And then just today, I had three people at work mention that uh, they had watched it or were going to watch it. So yeah, it's definitely caught people's attention and should make for a good show at Next Picture Show. And nowhere in there did I mention the Obamas, even though they are responsible for the film on some level, at least yeah, as I don't know producers. If, yeah, it's something from like a that. production company. I would say more if I understood more about what their exact involvement was. But you really can't read anything or see anything on the Internet about this film without the Obamas' names being attached to it. And I think that's definitely helped in terms of raising its for profile. Sure. Yeah. The current film spotting poll looks ahead to next week's fall movie preview, which film playing at September's Toronto Film Fest are you most looking forward to? We gave you a bunch of options, Josh. The Mr. Rogers biopic, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, Taika Waititi's Jojo Rabbit, Joaquin Phoenix in Joker, Ryan Johnson's Knives Out, or The Lighthouse, which is from the witch director, Robert Eggers, Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story, Bong Joon-ho's Palme d'Or winning Parasite, Another can stand out, Celine Sciamma's Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Steven Soderbergh's The Laundromat, and Uncut Gems from the Safdie Brothers. We, of course, also gave you the option of other. So maybe you read ahead, and this little game won't be any fun, but Josh, which of those movies would you have predicted, or as you sit right now, are you predicting our listeners are voting for the most? With our listeners, I would go with Knives Out or maybe The Bombach. I think those are both reasonable guesses. And yet, somehow, The Lighthouse 
Robert Akers, his follow-up to The Witch, is in the lead. That's respectable. I like that. Beating out our picks, Joker and Knives Out. Yeah, I I don't think I mentioned that one when I was trying to decide last time, but I can see that, absolutely. You were a big fan of The Witch, weren't you? Yeah, oh, yeah. It's a big fan of it, but I don't like to spend too much time thinking about it. I got it. We'll see if The Lighthouse is a similar type of film. Bong Joon-ho's Parasite, which we're both excited to see, is pulling near the top as well. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. If you leave a comment, please do let us know where you're listening from. It is time for Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a Film Spotting t-shirt. A couple weeks back, Adam and I massacred this scene. Sorry. No. Have you been in touch with your family? No, I told you I wouldn't. Leon waited outside the hospital last week. I just pushed past him. See, you don't owe me anything. Robbie, didn't you read my letters? Had I been allowed to visit you, had they let me every day, I would have been there every day. Yes, but if all we have rests on a few moments in a library three and a half years ago, then I'm not sure. Robbie, look at me. I don't know. Look at me. That was Kira Knightley and James McAvoy capturing just a little bit of the longing that I think you and I really brought <laughs> just a bit to that scene from 2010's Atonement. Christopher Hampton wrote the screenplay, which was adapted from the Ian McEwan novel, the movie directed by Joe Wright. That massacre was part of a show where we reviewed Jennifer Kent's The Nightingale. We also had the second film in our Dietrich von Sternberg marathon, 1932's Morocco. What does atonement have to do with any of that? Well, let's see what listeners came up with. Dave Bauman in Appleton, Wisconsin, wrote in, One of the main characters, Bryony, becomes a nurse over the course of the film. Florence Nightingale is usually considered the founder of modern nursing. The focus of this episode of Film Spotting was the new film, The Nightingale. Eh? Eh? I got nothing else, Dave says. (laughs) Sorry, Dave. Yeah, no, that wasn't it. Rory Dunn said connections include a film about a woman finding her way in the world with little regard to what damage she does along the way. Also, both Atonement and The Nightingale are second films from British directors that are follow-ups to critically acclaimed debuts. Hmm. Is Kent British or is she Australian? Great question, Josh. You will use Google while I read our next comment from Laura Ellis in San Miguel de Allende, Mexico. I guess the connection is a male protagonist going to war. Though Gary Cooper's French Foreign Legion was trying to put down an insurrection in Morocco and James McAvoy was going to Brussels early in World War II, of course, the great Dunkirk scene in Atonement. I'm sorry, Rory, from the quick Googling I could do, Kent does appear to be Australian. Okay, well, critically acclaimed debut, second films, close enough, Rory, but none of that was really what we were thinking. Sam, our producer, just going with the most basic connection of Joseph von Sternberg's Morocco and Atonement, both tragic Love stories, more or less, Josh. Sure. That's all we needed. So Adam Fromm wrote in with this little scene himself. He's from Brunswick, Maine. Why don't you go ahead and play the combined role of Adam and Josh, and I'll play Adam and Fromm. Josh, you start. Are you ready? Uh, Okay. Let's try it. And scene. No clue. Could be anything. It's a movie I adore. Atonement. Okay, see, you really should have played us. Yeah, you're right. Because (laughs) it was was me. It was me saying, I tried. You know what? I tried to direct that. It went badly. (laughs) 
bear with me here, but Adam said basically as soon as he heard me say it's a movie I adore, he knew it was atonement and he definitely was not alone. Ian DeLise from New Orleans, Louisiana says what gave it away was the combination of the British accents, if that's what you want to call it, and Adam saying that anyone who gets it right will be his friend for life. And no one else actually cares about this film as much as Adam. Started listening to the show a few months ago and have been rolling through the archive since. You guys keep up the great work. P.S. For the love of God, someone please get Michael Phillips to rewatch No Country for Old Men. And while you're at it, get Josh to fix his star rating of The Big Lebowski on Letterboxd. Here, here. Wow. Uh, I'm down is, with both, Ian. This is going to crush Ian, but I, I don't even know what that star rating is. Don't sweat it's the not stars, high enough. It's people. not high enough. Oh, my goodness. Longtime listener David L. Williams in Belfont, Pennsylvania, says, The film is Atonement, the gripping story of a little girl who keeps the same hairstyle over 60 years. Spoilers. I've seen this film once when it came out. Why am I still annoyed by this aspect of it? Good question. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think we can help you with that, David. Here's Kevin in Moore Park, California. I don't remember Kira Knightley being possessed by the ghost of Marilyn Monroe, so I could be way off. Didn't I play Marilyn Monroe yeah. fairly recently? Yes. A scene from Some Like It Hot, and I think the ghost of Monroe has, That's has right. lingered within I me. I understand. I get it. Yeah. Now, no one pointed out the name we changed in the scene. James McAvoy's character named Robbie. I changed him to Chucky. Yes. In honor of a certain Charles that James McAvoy is famous for playing. See where I'm going, Josh? Okay. Or not. You're yeah. losing all of your I, superhero credibility. No, you're, you're talking about Xavier and I X-Men. Am. I am. Okay. I well, just thought I'd point it out because no, no one else did. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, I missed it the first time, okay. too. Okay, you feel, reach I in. I feel enlightened. You reach into that film-spotting hat. I made a ton of new friends for life, Josh. Well, this is going to be your best friend yeah, tell for us life. Yeah, winner. Megan Burke. From Oxford, Mississippi. Congratulations, Megan. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and we will set you up with your very own film spotting t shirt. Camden! Horace! When the fellow's dead, the play is over. Say what you have to say with speed and put the audience out of their misery. We move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theater, one that I think is going to get only a few entries. Oh, I'm just really? putting it out there. I know there's a lot of oh, love for this film. Yeah, yeah. It's become, I don't want to say it's a cult classic, but it kind of has that following. It wasn't a super popular film. I don't know that anything about the lines. Well, okay, I say that, and I realize there's kind of a giveaway in it, but nothing else substantial about the dialogue, or maybe our voice work is going to give it away, though. There's no accents or anything that we're attempting that might clue a listener in. I will say we have offered about 60 clues already in the show. This is true. Okay. Okay. You're going to start it off. I'm going to give you the action. Are you ready? I think so. Here we go. And action. And you are my wife's lover? No. Then what are you doing here? I know you. You're the guy from the gym. I'm not here representing hard bodies. Oh, yes. I know very well what you represent. You represent the idiocy of today. I don't represent that either. Yeah, you're the guy at the gym when I ask about that moronic She's woman. She's not a moron. You're in league with that moronic woman. You're part of a league of morons. And, and scene. A what of morons, Josh? A league uh-huh. of them. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday. September 9th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. I think I got league right. You got league right. All right. (laughs) 
wanted to give a quick shout out to all of our donors this week, including our monthly subscribers. Whether it's $2, $5, or $10 a month, you really do keep us doing what we're doing. We start by acknowledging Druve. I hope I'm saying that right, Josh. And he may not still be there, but the donation comes to us from New Delhi, India. We also got a donation from Asa Gold with this nice note. College sophomore here, listener since January 2016. Film spotting has been a staple of my Friday routine for nearly four years, and your reviews of limited release films, championing of all the Golden Brick nominees, thank you for getting me to make time for Anna Rose Homer's The Fits back in 2016, and marathons have introduced me to many great films I never would have otherwise come across. This summer, however, I had not been listening as much until hearing your episode on The Nightingale and remembering that your show is a must-listen every week, a cut above other film podcasts. Your 30-plus minute discussion of Jennifer Kent's film was one of the most nuanced, truly critical looks at a piece of art I've heard this year. I also appreciate the recommendation to Angelica J. Bastien's article, which I found, as is usual for her work, eye-opening and thought-provoking. Anyway, this is a long way of saying that I was reminded of my longtime failure to support your show. I hope my meager $25 helps you guys Keep making film spotting for a long time to come. Thank you so much, Asa, for the kind words and for the donation. Finally, a Silver Club donor, George Ramos, writes in, I've been listening since about the Manic Pixie Dream Girl episode, and I'm long overdue to pay the dealer. Film spotting is my most anticipated podcast each week. I enjoy the reviews, interviews, polls, Massacre Theater, and The Madness. My wife and I particularly enjoy watching the films that you review for the Golden Brick Award and the marathons, especially regarding foreign films. The way you discuss film has enhanced my own teaching of it in my high school English classes, where I show Blade Runner and Moon in my science ethics and literature and film class, and The Florida Project, Do the Right Thing, Apocalypse Now, and All the President's Men in my American Cultural Studies class. Can I take that class? Yeah, seriously, George. Doing great work there as a high school teacher. George says he is writing from San Pedro, home of Sunken City, as seen in Chinatown, the Korean Friendship Bell, as seen in The Usual Suspects, and the Vincent Thomas Bridge, as seen in Heat. Have I name-dropped enough movies? You have, George. All great movies and great references. Thanks so much to you as well. Love hearing from people, Josh, who love not only the Golden Bricks, but love the marathons. Absolutely. May I inquire how Her Imperial Highness deigns to feel this morning? Her Highness feels as well as can be expected. After her romantic marriage. And how is His Excellency? His Excellency is very distressed because you've been avoiding him for an eternity. I haven't been avoiding you. You have. I've tried again and again to see you alone, and you've made it impossible. Marlena Dietrich there with not Charlton Heston, but John Lodge in 1934's <laughs> The Scarlet Empress. Charlton Heston. I guess maybe looks like Omar Sharif, sounds like Heston. Exactly. Yeah. The fourth and final film in our Dietrich Joseph von Sternberg Marathon. A quick synopsis here. Dietrich is Princess Sophia Frederica of Germany, later Catherine the Great of Russia. She becomes engaged to Sam Jaffe's Grand Duke Peter. He's heir to the Russian why, throne. Why are you laughing? Just Well, just when you... Peter's a bit of a dummy. <laughs> Let's go with that. So Dietrich's Catherine takes many lovers, including Lodge's Count Alexei. And when Peter does assume the throne, Catherine, spoilers, plans a coup 
to remove him from power. This film, The Scarlet Empress, was one of the last mainstream Hollywood films to get released before the Hays Code was strictly enforced, hence the memorable montage of topless women being tortured and burnt at the stake. This happens in this film. Yeah, didn't expect that as the family settled down for a 1934 film. I love it. Burt Glennon was the DP taking over for Lee Garms, who shot Morocco and was an Oscar winner for the last film we discussed, Shanghai Express. Glennon did also shoot Von Sternberg's Blonde Venus in 32. Travis Banton back again on costume design duty. Josh Nathaniel Myers, the professor, helping us with our marathons as always. He's also back on setup duty. Hi, guys. The first three films in this marathon have largely been box office and critical successes, garnering multiple award nominations and even, in the case of Shanghai Express, becoming the top grossing film of its year. 1934's The Scarlet Empress, however, was a box office failure, and Josh, Adam, I think I might commiserate with the film-going audience of 1934. Now, to be fair, I know the film has, in the years since, undergone considerable reevaluation. It's been embraced by some for its camp aestheticism and celebrated by others for its stylistic grandeur and for its radical feminism. But while I do think I can appreciate those perspectives, if I'm being completely honest, I just had a really difficult time getting on this film's wavelength. Partly to blame, I think, is what was for me the film's alienating sense of frivolity. Not, mind you, in those places where the film finds humor in the perverse and sadomasochistic, which honestly I found gleefully bold and sadistic. But perhaps in its smaller bits of farce, its comedy of missing wigs and scepters. More problematic for me, though, was, dare I say it, Dietrich, who I just don't think can sell the innocent, wide-eyed character of the first two-thirds of this film. Now, I know that to expect dramatic range from Dietrich is to miss the point. That's not who she is as a performer. Nevertheless, the film seems to want us to take her plight at least a little seriously, as exhibited, for example, in the extended close-ups of her despairing face during the wedding ceremony. And I'm just not sure she has the chops to embody the full breadth of her emotional journey. At the very least, I'll just say that I was hit with an overwhelming sense of relief when, an hour and ten minutes into the film, Dietrich was finally allowed to be Dietrich. In fact, admittedly, the last third of the film did a lot to redeem what had come before. Again, that's not to say that there weren't things to admire beforehand, such as those wild torture scenes that begin the film, as well as the oppressive and evocative mise-en-scene with its face-palming gargoyles, but it's really only when Dietrich is in the throes of her retributive power grab, with her candlelit face fetishized by screens, her tongue twirling straw to ensure that Alexei knows exactly what he's missing out on, and her self-assured visage crowned by a white fur hat that, for me, the movie reached the heights of the other three films of this marathon. So guys, having watched The Scarlet Empress, did you see in it, perhaps as the 1934 audience did, the beginning of the end for Dietrich and von Sternberg? Or did you walk away instead with the same kind of infectious enthusiasm you might find in, say, a Sam Van Halgren on Twitter? Because frankly, that's the level of elation I would like to have for this film. Thanks, guys. Yeah, for Sam, these two can do no wrong, apparently. And I don't I don't want to say that they did do wrong in The Scarlet Empress. I think it's an experiment, a wild experiment that succeeds in some ways and fails in others. It's interesting that Nathaniel puts it in the context of, you know, was was this the beginning of the end for them? It's the end for us, so we're not really going to see where things went. But that can make sense 
if you do see this as, and I think it does in a few moments, in its weaker moments, start to approach self-parody for both of them, where the things that we've been lauding for a couple of films now and appreciating are just turned up one degree, just just one notch Only more. one? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think when you look back at some of these other films, you could, I don't think either of us have used the word camp yet. No. Um, you know, we, we try to take into consideration the context of the time and all those sort of things, but I could see someone looking at all of their films and using that label here. I think it, it gets there now intentionally on their part. I don't know. I think, you know, They've been pushing boundaries in all of these films in terms of gender, in terms of the aesthetics. And I think this is a case where they do push those boundaries so far that they go over the top in certain sequences. There's uh, a lot of fun to be had there. There's some delightful moments in it and a lot of artistry still to admire, which we'll probably get to. But I do think as a whole, it's it's not of a piece, certainly with what they've done before. And it reveals, I would say, as Nathaniel suggested, some limitations on Dietrich's part. Yes. And I think it also reveals how von Sternberg can give himself over too much to this aesthetic, to the point where it's it's not in, in service of the other things that are going on. It's almost just for its own sake and it starts to drown out some of the rest of the film. Yeah, it's been one of the questions we've asked since the very beginning of the marathon, whether or not when everything goes right, is it about what Dietrich is doing as an actress or is it about what von Sternberg is doing with Dietrich as a director? And I suppose when things go wrong, and I wouldn't say this goes that wrong either, you're going to hear me try to defend this film in a moment, but it's definitely nowhere near the achievement that Shanghai expresses. I'd even say that the Blue Angel is, but when Dietrich isn't very good in that first third of this film, and she really isn't, Nathaniel commented on her being this wide-eyed innocent, and she really is wide-eyed, literally, throughout most of the first part of this film. She's not particularly good in those scenes. And is it is it her fault? Is it a limitation of her as an actress? Or do we blame von Sternberg for allowing her to do it, for putting her in a position where she had to do it and she can't be her best? And we've been talking about collaborators, even the costumes there. I mean, Banton's costumes, they make a comeback in this film too, because early on, she's just loaded like a doll. And of course it's purposeful. It's to make her look younger, but yes. she gets lost in all of she these really laces does. and ruffles. And it, it just... It doesn't work. No. And yeah, I think I understand why she might want to stretch or try something different. Maybe she wanted to toy with audience expectations at this point in their pairing. You could, at the time, maybe you could totally get it and maybe you'd want it. Maybe you'd say, finally, we're not getting the same sort of thing. But the other half of that is you've got to be able to pull it off. Yeah. I actually wrote down in my notes, Nathaniel mentioned that he didn't feel like she got to be Dietrich until the last third of the film. And I wrote in my notes, Dietrich doesn't show up until the 42 minute mark. And then I realized after that, that that was kind of wishful thinking that it's still sending her down a path that isn't really the Dietrich we've seen in the other films so far in this marathon. And then I added the note later, actually, she may not show up until the hour 11 mark. I think that's really where we finally see her. It's a line in particular when she says to the religious figure, I don't remember what his exact title is, but I think she says to him, I think I have weapons that are far more powerful than any political machine. And that's where you really feel the great Marlene Dietrich come out. But it's in a scene that appeared on its surface to be 
very un-Dietrich-like, where I did, I would say, get on the right wavelength with this movie. It's in The Stable, where Oh, see, we're going to differ on this yeah, one. Yeah, but, but hear me out. Go ahead. Because I'm ultimately justifying it in retrospect. It's not so much the enjoyment of it in the moment. Okay. It is a case where Dietrich's Sophia is trying to sort of be seductive with John Lodge, the way she puts the hay in her mouth and she falls backwards so clumsily and the hay tumbles on top of her. It's so awkward and absurd. Nothing remotely sensual about it. And honestly, not even that funny either. But that's where I realized, and you used the P word, Josh. You said that maybe it veers into self-parody. I'm giving Von Sternberg and Dietrich both the benefit of the doubt that this is absolutely parody. That's part of the experiment of this film, that they are parodying, to an extent, the Dietrich persona. But also, this isn't a historical drama like this movie is being billed as at all. This is a parody of historical dramas and the self-seriousness of them. And that's then when it clicked for me that so much of what seemed just kind of silly and was easily dismissible and was excessive before, it actually became quite funny to me. I think about all the scenes throughout the film of those preposterously large doors, right? You think about the sets sets on these historical dramas are always ornate. And he says, okay, I'm going to show you ornate. I'm going to make these doors 50 to 100 pounds each, and the people can barely even push them open. Those really kind of grotesque and overwhelming production design elements like those creatures that they sit in and all those monstrous statues. Yeah, they're that chairs are in almost with every statues frame. on them. They really are. The shot early in the film of Sam and I were just laughing about this today. It's early in the film when John Lodge, Count Alexei, shows up and she's now the young girl and she clearly doesn't know a whole lot about men. And he's so stunning and virile that when she's sent off to bed, she closes the door but can't stop looking at him. And she closes it so slowly that it really does become hilarious. And I think it's intentionally hilarious. And also there's this little trick there that Von Sternberg somehow pulls off, which is as she's closing the door ever so slowly, in theory, we're seeing less of her, but the way it's lit, she's actually getting brighter in the frame. So we're seeing less of her and more of her at exactly the same time. How about later a line like when that religious figure is collecting things for the poor and he says to the emperor, the crazy (laughs) imbecilic emperor, what do you have to give? And he slaps him and he says, that was for me. What do you have for the poor? You know, there are lines like that that are clearly meant to be comedic. And that's when you can only finally start to at all justify Sam Jaffe's performance or really so many of the performances in the film. Pause there because we have to spend separate time on Sam Jaffe's performance. Um, Yes, this is this is absolutely a parody of the genre. And um, but there are two distinctions there. Is it a successful one? Um, In moments, I think you found it more successful than I did. I found it entertaining. I, I would say that the the parody of the damsel sort of in distress stable scene doesn't work because Dietrich is not a comedian of that sort. No, you're right. And so, and what's what's kind of not sad, but what what's too bad about it is that gestures are one of her great weapons. They are. 
and hear every gesture is wrong. Yeah. She's hanging, a rope is hanging in the stable and she grabs it and kind of sways back and forth. I'll give you, she's trying to be more coquettish here than she was earlier in the film, but it's this weird combination of, of shy and the Dietrich we know. And um, it, it just, every movement from chewing on the hay yes. to falling, it, it, it's just not funny. But you don't think this is honestly... Mel Brooks before Mel Brooks. Okay, so he, no, here's, here's... I think that moment's an exact example of that. But here's the point. There's one thing to to parody the genre, which they're doing semi-successfully. I don't think they're intentionally parodying their own personas or styles because if they were doing that, they wouldn't bother with this naive Dietrich at the beginning. And once she does become Dietrich, there, there's a weird middle section as she's transforming and the camera lingers on her close-up so long that you do start to wonder, like, is he playing a joke on us here? Because yeah. long close-ups have always been a thing of theirs, but these are the longest ever. Is is that self-parody, but then no, in the end, she transitions, as we've said, to the ultimate Dietrich. So I just, yeah. I, I don't think this is a work of self-aware parody. I do think that it has some moments as a genre parody, well, for sure. I think, again, maybe mostly a semantic disagreement here, but I think there are flickers of self-awareness and self-parody. I think that mostly the fun Von Sternberg is having. It's him having the fun with this genre and with viewers and their expectations of not just Marlene Dietrich, but the type of actress and the type of performance that would be given in a drama of this nature. And this character would be someone who is more regal and more refined. And we see her be so clumsy and awkward in those moments that work for me, just like watching how jammed the mise-en-scene is in so many of these shots like the wedding sequence where it is full of people and statues and robes and it's it's suffocating in a way that actually makes this wedding sequence and again it's a key part of the story that she doesn't really want to marry Mm -hmm. this loser but it becomes legitimately kind of terrifying rather than glamorous. And I think anybody else watching this historical drama comes to see Marlene Dietrich in a film with an elaborate wedding sequence. They can't wait to watch anything else but what we get. Sure. Yeah. And that's that's another weird thing about this movie is, yes, it's sort of a Mel Brooks, you know, genre parody, but it's also a horror film. I mean, it's you mentioned those scenes of, you know, the the topless women being tortured. There's like a Caligula like element to sure. this movie, which I never expected. And that brings in the camp factor as well. But that I think von Sternberg's Caligula in this scenario. <laughs> He's the one indulging in everything. That production design is really disturbing. It's also fascinating to watch. You can't take your eyes away from it. The art director is Hans Dreyer. And those sculptures you mentioned, they were made, they brought in a sculptor, Peter Balbush, to do these. They're, a lot of times they're the bases of candelabras, which are these withered, melting creatures. Yeah. And those chairs with the gargoyles hanging over them, over the people sitting. And then the gargoyles even have uh, these, you know, bony fingers covering their own faces. Like they're in distress and dismay. The whole palace, you know, it's not, it's medieval. It's not 18th yes. century. Everything yes. is wood and stone. It feels like a cave. And and that gives it, again, this, this air of a horror film. Now, what do we do about Sam Jaffe? Because the, the guy went on looking at his credits to have a long and varied career. Right. Did many other things. Does he do anything for the first 45 minutes of this film other than... Make a Why did his eyes, right. as big as they can go, smile. grin strangely and <laughs> rotate his head from one shoulder to the other, no. back 
yeah. and forth, back and forth. And then finally, when he offers something else in the, the latter section, he just raves about like a, a yeah. power mad lunatic, which is nowhere near like the guy we saw before. No. It's, it's really something. No, it is. And a lot of the performances we see, it's really kind of a hodgepodge of different styles in the yes, film. But they is. are all a little bit grotesque and over the top in their own ways. And I think that it's fitting with the parody that we get but it doesn't necessarily mean that in the moment I took that much pleasure in watching Sam Jaffe do exactly what you said, which is kind of give this very one note performance for yeah. pretty much the entire film. I think that the other struggle with this film, especially when you compare it to the other films we've seen in this marathon, is he never finds a way. And I'll give you this, that it may be another perfect example of von Sternberg parodying the genre because the other element that's excessive is all the title cards. Oh, yeah. Right. So is that a case where the story needed or he felt like it truly needed all of that filling in the blanks? Or he almost said, OK, we're used to having this narrative being laid yeah. out. And I think that's absolutely the chapters a being parody, broken. And then he's sure. like, well, I'm going to give you one hundred and fifty two oh, yes. of them <laughs> because and they're all longer than they need to be. They that's, are. That's where Jaffe is described as a, quote, royal halfwit, a royal halfwit. And so there are little jokes in there as there well. There are. So, yeah, there definitely that's are. definitely like what's the other joke where he says of her? that Dietrich's character, Catherine the Great, had managed to, is it tame the army or had done something to the army, basically suggesting that she now has them under her control. Uh -huh. But of course, the innuendo is yes, that she had, innuendo. she had slept with enough officers in the army to control them. So you do get that innuendo in those title cards. But we are kind of always losing the rhythm of this thing because we go from these crazy scenes of a parody to lots of title cards to then these elaborate visual sequences that are fun to watch on one level because they're von Sternberg and they're kind of amazing. But these wordless extended scenes like yeah. the wedding scene, like that moment I do actually really love at the post wedding dinner where the camera starts up on high and stays above everybody and actually starts I think just on the table and a bunch of food spread out. And then it's just this extended tracking shot of decadence, right? Yes, Where it just yeah. then goes right over, hovers over the table. And there's we like see a the different characters. On yeah. The table. I mean, it's, it's absurd, everything about this film, but especially that scene and what's on the table and the, the army and array of people who populate that scene. But that's just a kind of fun von Sternberg visual moment. But it's conveying information and mood it and is. atmosphere. I would say there are other indulgences, and this is what I re was referring to earlier, where he, he doesn't hold himself back at all, where there are long, um, whether it's soldiers parading or other sequences that start to feel in their length a little stiff, when they're yes. not conveying anything new or capturing anything new. I also want to say, you know, back to a performance, back to Lodge, actually, as Alexei, you know, maybe they were trying to parody what Dietrich had done before through him, because he seems to be trying to out Dietrich Dietrich for the first half of the film when he's trying to seduce her um, as this innocent. And he seems to be delivering the lines the way she would deliver them A little and bit. kind of standing uh -huh. and posing. And let's just say he's no Dietrich. Well, he's no Dietrich, but 
there may be more praise for John Lodge coming here in just a little bit. Josh. Oh my goodness! Oh yeah. Well, I you have a defender here. Okay. Well, I um I will be very eager to hear that. Um, and I also have some praise for this movie that's going to come up in our awards. One thing I do think we do need to spend some time on though is how the movie does let her come into her own in some really thrilling ways when Catherine essentially stages this coup. I'm gonna I'll save one of those for the awards, but back to the costuming here. I love the detail. She's already kind of come into her own in these more elaborate mm-hmm. um, gowns, but for the coup itself, she's wearing a white variation on the male soldier's uniform, complete with one of those towering yeah. fur hats. And she pulls it off. Of course. And it's also this gender bending nod, right? To what the other times we've seen her do something like this. So that's probably, she's taken control before that. But that's when you get the full D trick and the movie kind of comes to its climax. Yeah, and even early in the film, we get flashes of the Dietrich and von Sternberg magic. We've talked a little bit in every one of these discussions throughout this marathon about moments where they're just perfectly in sync with each other. It's just like clockwork. And we get one when I think Alexei shows up and it starts on her being upstairs, being called down. And the camera starts with her up at that balcony coming out of her bedroom door, follows her down the stairs really gracefully. And then it cuts just as she's walking into the room and it follows her movement now going the other direction, this overhead shot. It's just right in line with her movement the whole time and does not only manage to be a nice visual touch from von Sternberg, but it adds this element of joy to what she seems to be feeling in this moment. She can't wait to go have this discovery, and I think the camera movement really underscores that. One other thing I did want to bring up real quick, we touched on just briefly the infamous torture sequence. And I was looking up some detail earlier today, I think for the awards, and I read something in one of the Criterion essays about their collaboration. It wasn't about this film necessarily in particular, but the writer said something fascinating that I didn't necessarily pick up on in the moment, which is that torture sequence, the moment that happens right before it is a very young Sophia, Mm -hmm. a young girl is in her bed and she's getting ready to go to bed, and don't they say something to her yeah, about— these are stories she's told. They're stories, right? Yeah. It's these— About the Russians. The Russians. And in the moment, I took it more straightforward as this is a montage that's showing us kind of a passage of time, the history of Russia and these, these terrible leaders, which it is doing that for us. It's filling in some of those blanks, but it really is her imagination. Oh, yeah. It's that yeah, this fantasy sequence. This yeah. little girl is the one imagining. Because then horrors. we cut to that's where she's about to be sent. Exactly. Um, yeah, very, very anti-Russia, this film. That's for sure. <laughs> well, let's get to our awards. Closing out the marathon officially, we are calling them the BOAs. We have five categories here. We are going to hand out our favorite Dietrich performance, our favorite non-Dietrich performance, then we'll go our favorite Marlena Dietrich moment and our favorite Von Sternberg moment. Finally, we will say what we felt was the best picture of the marathon. Our friend Nathaniel playing along with the awards as well. Why don't we go ahead and let him give out the first BOA? Even though Shanghai Express is undoubtedly Dietrich's best vehicle and the Blue Angel gets points for first impressions, I'm going to go with her performance in Morocco. Even if her character doesn't quite live up to Dietrich's full potential, her best moments are arguably unmatched. 
I'm thinking not only of her infamous performance Quan L'Amour Muert in Top Hat and Tails, but also the performance What Am I Bid for My Apple that follows, where Apple, Boa, and extremely suggestive lyrics are her weapons of choice. And I also love the scene, Adam, that you've mentioned on a couple occasions where she enters into a wild trance-like state during her engagement party. So, Morocco. Yeah. Yeah, we'll allow that, though I'm disappointed only in Nathaniel that he managed to praise Marlene Dietrich's performance in Morocco without ever saying, Amy Jolie. Yeah, but he did give us a little French. So, hey, credit him with that. All right. My best Dietrich performance is Shanghai Lily in Shanghai Express. I mean, in the context of our marathon, at least, we did skip Dishonored, which I think immediately precedes Shanghai Express Mm -hmm. chronologically. But for us, for me, this felt like the performance where Dietrich became Marlena Dietrich. It cemented her chemistry with the camera, essentially from this point on, making her co-stars superfluous. It's also the perfect distillation of the persona that's enticing but aloof, passionate but bored, somehow all of that at the same time. She gets to show real range here as well. I talked about that anger over Anna Mae Wong's courtesan being dragged into Chang's room against her will. She shows a different fire there than her usual smolder. And also in this movie, in this performance, she hits her marks given to her by von Sternberg perfectly. That climactic moment, I think we talked about it a little bit, where she turns out the light in her room, disappears in the darkness for just an instant, and then steps into that small circle of light that von Sternberg has waiting for her, looking up so it'll illuminate her face. When I wrote about it- Spoilers, Josh. On my website. We might get to that moment. (laughs) okay. Then I'll I'll save how I described it when we get to it later. But yeah, Shanghai Lily and Shanghai Express. Okay, well, we agree completely on Shanghai Lily and Shanghai Express being the best Dietrich performance. You touched on it, the contradiction she inhabits throughout this film. It's her most hardened and the most helpless we see Dietrich. It's her most kind of come hither and her most hostile. It's maybe her most grounded, but also her most otherworldly. When Shanghai Lily shows up and the way she walks through that train, she is like from another planet compared to everyone else in this film. So I'm with you on Shanghai Lily. That brings us to our best non-Dietrich performance. We go to Nathaniel Myers. The characters in these films largely orbit around Dietrich, and that's especially the case for all her male counterparts. Gary Cooper, the clear exception, of course. I think you could legitimately make a case that Emil Jannings as Professor Emmanuel Rott in The Blue Angel is maybe the exception that proves the rule. Nevertheless, it is with a female counterpart that my vote finally lands, Anna Mae Wong as Hugh Fei in Shanghai Express. Vengeance-seeking dragon lady stereotypes aside, her character strongly complements Dietrich's, and Wong performs her with a strength that maybe doesn't quite out-captivate Dietrich, but is nonetheless a force all its own. A great choice there from Nathaniel One. I would bet my lunch money, Josh, that you are going to go with as well. Indeed, that's my choice. Can you imagine being another woman and trying to make your presence felt in a Dietrich picture? Okay. This is a good point. Just the challenge of that. And then the virtue of, you know, not only making that mark, but doing it as beautifully as Wong does in just a few scenes. Um, There's just a real fullness to every moment she has, and it gets really amplified after she is raped by the rebel leader, by Chang, who has taken this train hostage. She conveys the real trauma, including a shocking scene that uh, I, I still can't believe the movie paused 
to include where it's implied that she considers suicide and Lily is there mm-hmm. to to stop her. And then later that raw, vengeful anger. I mean, I, I saw it as legit. I think Nathaniel's right to point out that yeah. it did exist as a part of a stereotype, but still I saw it as very legit in the performance. We we discussed, you know, when we reviewed Jennifer Kent's The Nightingale, we talked a little bit about how um, how rape scenes are handled in film. And I think this is an interesting counterpoint in a lot of ways to The Nightingale, this movie from 32. We also talked about Angelica Jade Bastien's uh, Vulture Piece, pointing out that a lot of older films will handle these sorts of scenes by alluding to them in ways and in some instances carry more power or effectiveness. Here it's not explicit at all, but thanks to Wong's performance, I do think the enormity of the violation is really felt. So a complete surprise for me, not something I you know would have expected coming into this marathon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Nathaniel's right that Jannings is great as well. He almost has a lead, so that's that's a really good choice to make. But for me, it is Anna Mae Wong and Shanghai Express. Yeah, there is undoubtedly a presence about her that she completely holds when she's sharing a frame with Dietrich. Now, in his explanation there, Nathaniel used the German to give the character name of the man who plays opposite Marlene Dietrich in The Blue Angel, but he called him Jannings. I'm going to call him Emil Jannings. I'm going to go with the more German there. I did think about him for this because I really did appreciate the foolish bluster he brings to that character as big and broad as it is in The Blue Angel. I thought about Adolphe Menju as La Bessier in Morocco, in addition to Houfei. I liked Eugene Pallet as Sam Salt in Shanghai Express and Clive Brook as the love interest. Doc Harvey really did work for me as well. But Josh, I'm going with your guy. I'm going with Count Alexei, my favorite non-Dietrich performance. Loved him. Loved John Lodge in this film. And I think the reason why is because he works either way you want to look at the film. He works in terms of parody or he works if you just transported him to the more straightforward historical drama version of this film. And from the moment he walks on screen, frankly, I was as smitten with him as Dietrich is. He's a little bit scary, and he's definitely seductive, and he's maybe seductive because he's actually a little bit scary. So that's my guy. I can't believe it. Love him. And Sam's with me, by the way. I mean, he's possibly the most comedic because his parody if if sam jaffe is doing parody it's not working whereas lodge yes i actually did laugh at i don't know if that's if that's enough to make it the best non-dietrich performance <laughs> i think for me i got stuck on There's the way fact more that, subtlety that than that you're giving him oh my for. goodness are you kidding no me? i'm not and did you bring me a portrait of the grand duke i'm sorry i did not would you like him to be handsome isn't he would you like him to be better looking than all other men and tall and gracious yes i think i would well, he is all that and more. He's the handsomest man in the Russian court, tall and formed like a Greek god, a model in fashion and deportment which all of us strive to follow. Are you eager to see him? Yes. His eyes are like the blue sky, his hair the color of ebony. He is stronger than a team of oxen and sleepless because of his desire to receive you in his arms. And he can also read and write. Tell them my daughter. Oh, for me, I got stuck on the fact that he is just trying to do Dietrich. It, it's it's like, I've got her part. She's playing this other part in this movie. I'm going to go with her yeah. part. I'm going to be the... Yeah. 
And as I said, he's no Dietrich. Well, nobody he is. Just doesn't nobody have is. It. You shouldn't even try. He's John also Lodge. a presence on screen. Just so, the way, just the way they both wear those fur hats. I mean, she's exactly. she's got him beat there too. Okay. Well, let's see if we can agree on the best Marlena Dietrich moment. So many to choose from in this marathon. This is Nathaniel's choice. In Shanghai Express, during a conversation about regrets between Dietrich's Shanghai Lily and Clive Brooks' Doc, Dietrich takes his hat and places it at an angle on her head. She moves in front of him, turns, and with her Mona Lisa smirk declares, There's only one thing I wouldn't have done, Doc. What, for instance? I wouldn't have bobbed my hair. And at the precise moment she says the word bobbed, she flicks the brim of her hat. It's a small moment, one that echoes her hat tip from Morocco, and one that is charged with the confident, seductive, gender-fluid energy of her stardom. It's my best Dietrich moment of a crowded bunch. A gesture there from Nathaniel Myers. A gesture and a smirk. Um, and my moment combines both. Maybe it's the smirk that I, I really like about this. Here I am going to come to the defense of the Scarlet Empress. Believe it or not, my top two contenders for this category, they come from the two films. I liked them both, but probably liked them the least. And that's where she stares down the crowd wearing the tux and the top hat mm-hmm. in Morocco. Uh, that's my runner up. But my pick is smirking at the Grand Duke and his mistress in the Scarlet Empress. And I have to credit Debbie with this one. As I said, we were watching as a family and it was her suggestion. And it's true. When she does this, we were all admirably giggling at the moment at at just the bravura she brings to this. It comes after the Duke. Jaffe's Duke has laid out his plans that after his aunt dies and he takes the throne, he's going to do away with Dietrich's Catherine. He's going to install his mistress on the throne. And you know, this is Jeffy has shifted here into the madman, so he's a little more of a threat at this point. He's got bit. the power. It's a mortal threat. It's a real threat. So it's not that he's this half which she doesn't have to take seriously. In the where the way the power structure is at this point in the film, it's a real threat. What does she do? Stares, that slight smile. Yeah. And she, the longest exit of all the time. The longest <laughs> exit. She just coldly leaves the room. Then another gesture stops. I forget if she actually, to get out of the room, has to turn yeah, or if she chooses like to do this. But <laughs> right. basically, something requires her to lose her gaze, but she picks it up again. Yeah. Before leaving the door, she just looks at him again. And basically, she's deflecting his threat back to him times 10 without saying a word. Well, I've got another gaze for my choice, and it goes back to Morocco. Nathaniel, definitely on the right track, picking not just a Dietrich moment, but a moment only Dietrich could offer. Something that in the moment seems inspired, maybe even a little bit odd, comes off as a little bit spontaneous, even perhaps. Also, thinking about these awards and the time capsule factor, if you will. If someone was coming from the future and trying to get a sense of Dietrich and von Sternberg from this marathon, specifically Dietrich here, using our awards as a guide, what would it tell them? And the iconography, certainly the androgyny of Dietrich is established in Morocco. And I wanted to give a nod to that. And my moments connected to what is probably her most iconic moment, that kiss. But it's not the kiss itself, nor is it the hat flip afterward, which I do love and which Nathaniel rightfully pointed out she's paying homage to, I think, mm-hmm. in Shanghai Express. For sure. But it's before the kiss where she comes around the table and she takes the drink, which she's wearing 
a man's clothes. She downs the drink in one gulp, just like a man. And she starts to walk away. And then, just like a man might, she sees something she likes. The woman at the table, Madame Cesar. And she lingers, and she stares at her. And she just looks her up and down. And it's only a few seconds, but it feels like it's a lot longer. And in that moment, that sizing up of Madame Cesar, you get the mystery of Dietrich. You get even this kind of sense of danger. The woman can only laugh at it because she's so kind of unnerved by it. But then just like a man, Dietrich, she takes exactly what she wants. She first does that little magic trick or whatever with the flower behind Mm, her head. mm -hmm. And she says, can I have this? So she's very polite there and saying, can I have this flower? And when the woman says, yes, she takes it. And then she just goes after the kiss. She doesn't ask for permission for the kiss. She just takes it. And the hat flick really is great, though, that follows it because it's kind of this disarming. I just did something really provocative. Oh, what me kind of moment where then she she saunters off. That whole sequence really is prime Dietrich, but especially I think just that pause, which we've talked about, is something unique to Dietrich and your pick as well. Holding the frame, mm-hmm. not having to do much at all, not but rushing. just being on frame. I don't know how many actors pause as long as her, hold the frame as long as she does. So that's my best Dietrich moment. That brings us to our best von Sternberg moment. Is it possible that one of us is going to dare to pick a von Sternberg moment that doesn't involve? Marlena Dietrich, we will see, starting with Nathaniel. Guys, I'm hoping one of you picks up the slack by mentioning some amazing tracking shot, or some prolonged dissolve, or some moment of elaborately designed mise-en-scene. Because really, how can you even choose? For me, somewhat arbitrarily and not all that originally, I have to go with a moment of light and shadow. That of von Sternberg's muse, Marlena Dietrich, in the train car toward the end of Shanghai Express, as she stares upward, cigarette in hand, cloaked in darkness except for one beam of light, which is creating that distinct shadow of a butterfly under her nose. It's a moment almost apart from the rest of the story, a moment of transcendent artifice, which is how I might more generally characterize von Sternberg's aesthetic. See, Josh, why did you have to spoil Nathaniel's Thunder. Sorry, he had Nathaniel. it all laid out there. And I'm afraid this really is the right answer, despite there being so many different moments to choose from. This existential crisis that we get from Lily in the train car is the standout moment of maybe the entire marathon for me. And it was tough because I certainly considered choosing a moment deliberately where Dietrich isn't the focus. She already got her category. We just shared that winner. Let's make it more about him than it is about her. Or as Nathaniel alluded, do we pick a dissolve or a tracking shot or some bravura moment? We got so many of them to consider from this marathon versus what is a stationary close-up. Not that it's not a bravura moment with the way he uses light and shadow. It definitely is. But should we go with something a little more active or ostentatious? But at the end of the day, I think this marathon has proven to us that von Sternberg was all about Dietrich, his best work is when he is showcasing her. And as we touched on during our discussion of the film last week, those trembling hands really stood out to me and made an impression. And all of those contradictions, she is at her most vulnerable in that moment, and yet her most alluring, I would say. 
Yeah. And when I wrote about Shanghai Express, I, I called it a career and a close-up. I mean, it just – it does capture everything. It's absolutely wonderful. And, and one of the reasons I did have that as her best performance, I tried – you know, I tried to split the difference for this category, um, face that choice as well. Do I choose something that focuses on her? Do I go with something that she's not even on the screen? I decided to go right down the middle with an insert shot of her hands. So it's it's not entirely <laughs> her, but she is definitely there. And this does come from Shanghai Express. It's when Lily is attempting to pray for Doc, who's being held hostage at this point. And this shot just involves her hands. Von Sterberg chooses to basically capture the intensity of this moment with one close-up. They're lit, so they're they're glowing in what is otherwise darkness. They're trying to close in prayer, but just not being able to completely clasp. A little bit of trembling going on here as well. And I just think it's – the reason I chose it for my von Sternberg moment is because it's everything we need to know via an image. Um, and this being von Sternberg, it's a melodramatic image. The importance of the action, we understand. Lily's conflicted emotions about it, we understand. And we see both the bright hope – that's involved, but also the darkness surrounding it that's going to just snuff that hope out at any moment. So it's it's um, maybe a minute choice for this. It's not quite as ostentatious in some of the more elaborate sequences that he did with tracking shots or dissolves, but I do like the specificity of it. And I also like, you know, back to the Scarlet Empress, that calls back to this, I think, a very different context, though. Do you remember? This is one moment where I feel like, okay, now she's coming into her own. When she seduces the guard in the garden, yeah. when she realizes, I've got I've to get pregnant if that's her power play. Oh, yeah. It's not going to happen from the half-wit. So why not this um, you know, guard who's almost as handsome as John Lodge? Right. That whole thing is captured. She puts her arms around his neck, yeah. and we see her hands. Her we, hands. we essentially see them committing the act by how her hands mm -hmm. react. So it's a, it's a motif of von Sternberg, so I think it works as the best von Sternberg moment. The best part of that exchange with the guard out in the night is the payoff later of the joke when he doesn't recognize her as she's now the empress, and she describes him as surely very efficient. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. From how it was depicted, it was it was efficient. Maybe a it little was, more than well, that, though. I, I, he only needed one attempt. Yeah, that's what, true. Good what point. she was after, she got from that guard. Okay, best picture. Probably not much of a surprise here, and yet we will let Nathaniel do the honors. Call it Peak Dietrich. Call it Peak Dietrich and Peak von Sternberg. Whatever side you choose, I would be surprised if we didn't all agree. Shanghai Express is the best film of this marathon. Thanks, guys. Nathaniel, as he so often is, is absolutely correct about Shanghai Express being the best film in this marathon. If you could only watch one of these four movies to get the best sense of who both of them were as artists, if someone gave me that challenge, it would be a very quick answer to say, just go to Shanghai Express. Yeah, that's where I would point people to. I think of the four films we've seen, at least, it's it's the one where everything between Dietrich and von Sternberg is clicking perfectly. He knows how to best highlight the rare bird quality that she offers. And she knows how to honor the, the Kiroscoro tableaus he's devised. You know, she, she's doing them justice as well. Mm -hmm. she's, she's serving them. Now, 
Beyond the two of them, though, I think this movie also has a plot that's full of international intrigue. There are strong supporting players here. And really, we've touched on it many times, but probably the best costume design in the marathon from Travis Banton. That uh, that black feathered outfit she has at the beginning probably inspired Angelina Jolie's whole look in Maleficent. And I'm sorry, as great as the costume design is in Maleficent, it's uh, Dietrich Ward better. Let's just say Dietrich Ward better. So yeah, if you haven't been able to play along on this marathon or haven't jumped in yet and think I've only got time for one of these films, yeah. Shanghai Express is where you should go. Well, we thank Nathaniel once again for his amazing contributions to the marathon. We hope a few of you out there have followed along with the marathon. We are in talks about what the next marathon should be. We haven't fully decided whether or not we're going to get to another one this year or not. It would be nice to knock out another four-week marathon and get to them four weeks in a row like we did with this one. But we are approaching the fall movie season, Mm -hmm. and we're going to have some weeks where there's some movies coming out that uh, we want to devote time to. That said, there are some open weeks, Josh. We've noticed on the schedule where nothing is really enticing us. So a marathon might be possible. Some of the ideas we've kicked around, we previously mentioned looking at the work of Hirokazu Koreeda, or we could stick with classic Hollywood and famous actresses whose work we need to become more acquainted with, like Marlena Dietrich. How about Betty Davis? Or Sam has really had us focus on this one, Josh, looking at Chinese cinema from the best of the decade. And Sam's being a smart producer here. He's thinking about the task we have at hand coming up, which is looking back on this decade, the 2010s, which we'll be devoting a lot of time to, not at the end of this year, but probably early into next year when we have a little bit of distance. And we have a longtime listener of the show. He's been on the show before, Sean Gilman, great film writer and thinker who loves Chinese cinema. And when IndieWire came out with their 100 greatest films or whatever, the 2010s, he pointed out the dearth of Chinese films and said, here are 11 movies you really need to see if you're going to consider the best of the decade. Here are 11 essential Chinese films. I've worked with him to narrow that down even to the essential four to six. So we're thinking about that. We could, of course, focus just on one of those directors as well and go Johnny Toe. We haven't made this explicitly clear, Josh, but we have kind of tried to do a little bit of alternating from Hollywood to maybe foreign language, as opposed to kind of following up Dietrich with Betty Davis, even though I wouldn't mind doing that. No, I mean, we haven't done this before where we focused on an actor, and that's been very rewarding. But I do like the idea of mixing it up, and we've got a lot of good options here to go in another direction. So we'll have to see if we can fit it in. We will, and we welcome your feedback. If you want to push us in one direction or another, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also check out all of our past marathons at filmspotting.net slash marathons. Josh, that's our show for this week. It is. Over at the website, we also have reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005 in the show archives. And at filmspotting.net, you can vote in the current film spotting poll. We're asking which film playing September's Toronto International Film Festival are you most looking forward to? To order film spotting t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And to subscribe to the weekly film spotting newsletter, well, you can do it at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. We are on Facebook and Twitter. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Out in limited release this weekend, opening here in Chicago, Aquarella, a documentary about water. 
simple enough. Brittany runs a marathon. This stars Jillian Bell. It's got a 73 on Metacritic, and it's recommended by our pal Michael Phillips. I did watch the trailer for this just the other day, and I would like to catch up with Brittany Runs a Marathon. Also, Ne Jia, which is a blockbuster animated film from China. In wide release, you can see the supernatural murder mystery starring David Oyelowo and Storm Reed. It's called Don't Let Go. Next week on the show, we're going to talk about a different supernatural murder mystery of sorts, It Chapter 2, and we will get to our top five questions of the fall movie season. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Our music this week is by Jay Salm. It comes from the new album, Anak Ko. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.